Today's program is sponsored by Reformation Sites, an easy-to-use website platform helping Reformed churches reach out more effectively. Listen at the end of the podcast for a special offer. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Our goal is to win them to the truth and to hinder any negative implications or trajectories that their teaching might have. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master and I am joined by my friend, Dr. James Dolezal. James, how are you today? Doing well, Jonathan. We have the opportunity today to have a discussion between the two of us and I thought it might be helpful to discuss something that I think it's a question that that a lot of men in the ministry face today, which is what's the role of the pastor in engaging in polemical debates? And by that, we really mean arguments, but not necessarily in a negative sense, a, a kind of, you know, uh, something driven by self-interest or whatever, but a genuine argument. What, what's what's the place for polemics in the life of the pastor? So, Maybe we can start with this question. I think I think we're on the same page about most of these things, but I'm certain we're on the same page about this first question. Is there a place for polemics in the duties of a pastor? Not only is there a place, but there's in fact a, um, a prominent place for it uh, in as much as it is part of the responsibility of the pastor to refute error. Um, and we can talk in a few moments about sort of the manner of that, the how you do that, but that you should refute error is something that isn't isn't sort of left up to personal taste. Thinking of Paul's uh, exhortation to Titus in Titus one nine, he says that um, that the overseer, uh, among other things, is to be one who is self controlled, devout, but also it says holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Uh, So there has to be a a competence in doctrine and a devotion to sound words and doctrine. He says, for this reason, not, not just so that he can be personally pious and encouraged in his heart, though undoubtedly that should be one of the results, but he says, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So part of the pastor's responsibility in um, studying sound doctrine and becoming well-versed in it and being devoted to it is for the purpose of polemics, um, for the purpose of correction, exhortation, refutation. Right. So in other words, it's not just a place that if you aren't refuting error, your people are most definitely exposed to error. So that its refutation is part of your, in the context here, it's part of the shepherding responsibility. This is how we look out for the flock of God. And we see this not only in the instructions that are given in the New Testament. You mentioned Titus, of course, Paul in First and Second Timothy makes the same point uh, that Timothy needs to be engaged in refuting and rebuking and, and that kind of argumentation and polemic. We also see it in the example of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 20, he talks about his ministry in Ephesus and how it was driven by 
uh, protecting them from sound doctrine. And then he exhorts the elders to do the same. And, and we see it even in Paul's own direct, I think probably very difficult engagement with Peter, where he, he rebuked him to his face because there was this significant issue of doctrine and practice at stake. Maybe we should say something about that in particular, because I think sometimes um, people might make a distinction between polemics outside of the church and polemics within the church. And we might have this, particularly if you think of, you know, the untold number of apologetics ministries, some of those authorized through a local church, some of them self-appointed, perhaps all of them sincere and earnest. Uh, And yet most of those ministries tend to, and not wrongly, focus upon unbelievers and those that are outside of the body of Christ. But in the case of Galatians chapter two, mm-hmm. um, this is one apostle to another Galatians two. When, when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Um, Paul was right in this case. Peter was wrong. Peter had been teaching or at least supporting error What's interesting, and I want to say something about this, because sometimes there's a, a new ideal today that you can't refute someone publicly until you have gone to them privately. And I would argue that the context for that is not in the case of public teaching. Uh, if someone has publicly taught or propagated error, then it is the responsibility of those entrusted to guard the truth to oppose it with equal publicity, so to speak. So, in Paul's case with Cephas, it doesn't say that he took him aside. In fact, in verse 14, he says, um, "He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Um, his error was an error known to all, and his reputation was in the presence of all. And I, I think this is the one aspect of polemics that makes some modern Christians uneasy. When it's not orthodox to a heretic necessarily, but it is one brother to another in which one brother is an error and, needs, and publicly an error needs to be corrected. Um, I think there you have a case of that. Right. So, I mean, just to be clear, in, in Matthew 18, which is often cited in these discussions, it says, if your brother sins against you, you go to him privately. But you're talking about something different. We're talking here about a public statement or something that's written, something that's been preached, something that's being taught in public. And there's not an obligation there to sit down with that person. It's a public sin. It can be refuted publicly. We see examples of that in the scriptures. What we're saying then is pastors ought to understand that part of their calling is to a ministry of, at times, polemics, rebuke, refutation, that that is a part of the equation. Now, I think one of the, one of the risks, though, is Paul is quick to say that this has to be done in a certain manner, that it is something we're to do with patience, that it is something we're to do, not letting our anger get the best of us. Right. So, it's not a question of to be polemical or not. The answer to that is yes, you must. As long as there is error, you must be polemical. The question is, um, in what way and in what manner? And this is where we need to fight our passions and our pride and that tendency that we have 
to not simply correct error, but hurt persons. I think sometimes people hurt people because they're not just attacking the error of that person, um, but they're actually trying to undermine and discredit the person as such. And I think we need to be careful in polemics to also be ironic. Um, now, what it means to be ironic and what sounds ironic to one person may may sound like um, undue polemicism and harshness to another person. But I think a couple rules uh, that kind of guide this will be to make sure that the issue stays the issues, particularly when you're refuting error. Um, attacking persons is easy and widespread, and you'll always get somebody to sort of, you know, get Cheer caught up in that. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of stuff that sort of fans passions, uh, and it's easy to do that. To actually understand the error of your opponent and of exactly where in that error lies, and then further, not only to fairly represent what you're opposing, um, and I would say like in terms of literature um, or in terms of sermons, this means documentation um, if you're right. writing. This means um, actual citation if you're um, refuting publicly. I think we need to make a, a great effort to make sure that whatever error we're opposing is at least being rightly presented before we offer our critique of it, and that we make sure that we keep that that focus uh, on the error itself. Because our goal, especially when pole- when it's polemics among brethren, um, our goal is to win them to the truth and to hinder any negative implications or trajectories that their teaching might have uh, in the body of Christ. Well, and that's so important because just as you're trying to win them to the truth, you have to win them with the truth. If you're engaging in something ad hominem, if you're if you're simply throwing caution to the wind in terms of what you say about them, then you're not winning them to the truth. You may be right on a particular issue, but you are a, a false witness. Proverbs 12 talks about that, that, that there are rash words which are like sword thrusts, but the wise tongue brings healing. So, so there is a... Um, it's absolutely essential that you yourself are operating according to the truth. And even I think giving the benefit of the doubt in that. Right. And I think as we think about this, it's such a fine line and the difficulty that I think all of us experience just in our daily lives of firmness that isn't harshness. And I think, and I think sometimes in the minds of maybe a third party who's looking in or listening in to a polemical exchange. Um, we have to remember this: people are people are emotionally involved in a way that goes beyond just the the truth and error value of the conversation. People are invested in relationships. People feel an emotional indebtedness to say a particular teacher, uh, and so when that teacher is critiqued, even if very dispassionately. It can provoke this emotional response that says, um, he crossed the line. But what, what that really is, is I'm emotionally upset that someone I love um, is now being critiqued. And I think when, when Paul says to the Thessalonians, brethren, stand firm and hold to the, to the traditions which you were taught, it is that great difficulty of firmness that is avoiding harshness. And I think sometimes there's a confusion in the minds of those looking in at polemics where firmness 
just looks like harshness. Again, though, because there is an emotional component that's very difficult to extricate from this. No, I think that's good advice. And that gets to the issue that we could have really devoted the whole episode to and and probably 10 episodes to, which is how polemics is engaged in, even in terms of the medium that's used or the media that are used. And one of the things that becomes hard today is that so much of what's done in the name of polemics is done online in usually short format, little punchy um, quotes. And and that is notoriously difficult in terms of gauging the, the tone that you're describing. In fact, actually, and I, I don't mind saying, I know you won't mind me, me even saying this uh, as we're recording, you wrote me a one-line email that was, I didn't think twice about. But later on, you went back and said, oh, was I too you know, harsh? We talked on the phone. And, and you weren't at all. It was, it was a, you, were, you were worried for no reason. However, it just underscores the fact that sometimes these things are, are difficult to get right. And the more you're doing it online, in these short format kind of settings, probably the more prone you're going to be to not hitting the mark. I think also that medium, particularly a medium where um, something posted 12 hours ago is already now ancient history, unless you have, you know, kept that sort of stream of comment going. Um, there's this there's this tyranny of the urgent, especially in social media, that really militates against um, carefully chosen words, um, tempered language, but it also militates against just the time it takes to understand this error you might be critiquing. I've, I've read many criticisms online of positions that I think are an error, but the criticisms are not particularly helpful because they haven't really grasped the error that they're critiquing. But the, the, the medium itself really works against the kind of patience that it takes to get that understanding and to engage in a kind of meaningfully constructive way. So while we started by saying pastors need to be engaged in polemics, it's just uh, it's it's a part of the work of pastoral ministry. Uh, I don't think either one of us is saying that that means, therefore, 20 hours of your week should be spent on Facebook pushing back against error uh, and that kind of thing. Well, you know, I'm I'm a bit of a luddite on this stuff, and I'm not on social media anyway. But um, and part of the reason I'm not is because if I were, um, I, I would be easily drawn into being absorbed in that kind of cut and thrust that goes on there. Um, and and those who are engaged in that have to be they have to guard themselves in an extraordinary way. But the pastor has so many m- more things to do. Um, then simply refute error. He's also engaged in the cure of souls and encourage in visiting the sick, um, and and building up the flock. Um, in so many ways, the the polemical side can be viewed in a negative and a positive way. Negatively, it's meant to guard the hearts and the minds of your people, but positively, it's an occasion to let the truth speak with a kind of precision and clarity that otherwise might not be possible. So that so that we can, if we're wise about this, we can actually take hold of error and use it as the occasion to give an even more careful exposition of the truth, which is really what we're after. And what we're really interested in ultimately is not tearing down strongholds, but fortifying the truth. 
And I, I think if we keep that in view together with all the other things that a pastor is res- responsible to do, um, it, it needs to be placed with balance uh, in the pastor's life. But that's a good point, too, because for those who would want to avoid any con- controversy at all costs, it is important to keep in mind that sometimes, oftentimes, these controversies serve to sharpen our own understanding. I can think of several different semi-public controversies that I wasn't necessarily engaged in. Some of them I had peripheral involvement in, but but some of them I was completely disengaged from, one that was happening while I was in seminary. And uh, I remember at the time, actually, a professor saying, you know, this is useful because it will help us sharpen our understanding of this particular doctrinal issue. And he was absolutely right. And and I do think that happens. The Lord uses these things in our life and, and uses these things in the church to sharpen us, to clarify our thinking, to make our mind more conformed with the scriptures. Without um, Judaizers and Gnostics, what would the epistles of Paul be? If you know, no, if you right. understand what yeah, I'm saying. No, I, that's right. They're, they're, in many cases, they're polemical documents that are aimed at error. And yet, you know, of course, the, the, the benefit for us is inestimable. Right. And so it's not, it's not a question of inordinately drawn into the cut and the thrust of polemics, but do I know how to wisely use polemics to advance the cause of truth in the hearts of my people? Maybe that's the best way to end because we have to know our, our own hearts as well. Some people will be drawn to polemics and it will cause them to ignore things that they find less immediately stimulating or, or harder perhaps to engage in. And so there does need to be a balance as we look at the pastoral epistles uh, of, of the duties of pastoral ministry. And if what you find is all I'm doing is engaging maybe even online in, in debates. Well, that that's not fulfilling all the duties of, of the pastor. So there's a there's a bit of self knowledge, I suppose, that's that's required in any of these things. Right. I think we need to guard against uh, and just be careful not to have a sort of piety that says polemics is always wrong, um, or right. just kind of to break it down. I'm I'm a nicer person than you are because I don't do polemics. There's a place in which the pastor needs to be both ironic and polemic as he ministers the truth uh, to his congregation. Well, James, as always, it's been good to talk with you. And we thank our listeners for joining us today for this discussion. If you're interested in thinking about this more, you can go to placefortruth.org. There will be some follow-up articles. And if you click on the link for this episode, you have the chance to win a copy of The Greatest Fight in the World by Charles Spurgeon. It's a banner of truth, little paperback that engages with some of the same issues we've been discussing today. So you can go to the Theology on the Go link and it'll it'll give you a, a place to have a chance to win. And we also would love to hear from you. We would love to uh, know per- particular topics that might be of help to you. And if there's anyone you know who might be helped by this podcast in general, please pass it along. If you are in a position to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or at placefortruth.org. And as always, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. So you'd like to do more with your church's website. 
especially in this day and age when keeping your members and visitors informed is so important. Hi, Eric here from Reformed Media. I've developed Reformation Sites as an easy-to-use website platform to help Reformed churches reach out more effectively. With many beautiful mobile-ready designs to choose from, helpful services, and useful features such as Sermon Manager, online bulletins, courses, and notifications, your church's website will be ready the next time a major event happens. It also integrates with other popular services like Sermon Audio, online donations, and live streaming with pricing that fits into any church budget. To celebrate the launch of Reformation Sites, we're offering free basic setup for a limited time. The first 30 signups may also receive a free wordmark logo designed for their church. Go to ReformationSites.com to get started today, or call me, Eric, at 561-900-6886 to explore the possibilities. Reformation Sites, church websites for a modern reformation.